I've discovered that um, when I'm patient, that's really good evidence that God's spirit is in control of my life because uh, my flesh very typically manifests itself in impatience, which, um, you know, honestly, the examples are too many to bother you with this morning. I'm going to give you an example because it happens all the time. Pretty much any time I'm stuck in a line, I'm going to start feeling, you know, tight and tense in my chest and and I kind of start to lose all perspective. Whatever it is that I'm doing at that moment, it needs to be done right now. And, you know, I I wonder sometimes, I'm, I'm in the midst of that moment and I think, why am I that way? You know, where, where does that come from and, and how do I change so that my natural reaction to these circumstances becomes one of peace and patience? Well, I hope you noticed as we were studying the book of Romans that our biggest problem is not sins, but sin. Our biggest problem is not necessarily the particular sins that we do, but the indwelling principle of sin that we're born with. That is, as Paul describes it, sin which is wrapped up in the members of our body. It is intertwined with actually our physical being and our minds, the way we think, and the organ of our brain and everything about us. There is this bent within us that wants to go our own way, that wants to live independently from God. And that's why we commit acts of sin, because we're broken. We have the principle of indwelling sin, sometimes what Paul calls uh, the flesh. So we're stuck with that. How do we change? Do we just say to ourselves, you know, I'm going to exert more willpower today. I'm just, you know, a sheer act of the will. I will change my character. I will be patient today. You ever tried that? I've tried that before. The results are, are not good. Uh, you know, every once in a while you may see like a glimmer of change that you think that you have effected in your own life and then you're proud about that, which is not a positive result either. So what do we do? Do we just do nothing? Do nothing? This summer we are going to be talking about spiritual disciplines. It's basically an expansion upon our study of Romans 6, 7, and 8. You recall, as we were studying Romans 6, we encountered a particular word, the word present. Paul wrote, just as you formerly presented your members, that is, your physical being, but also your thoughts, okay? You presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in even more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification or holiness or Christ-likeness or genuine change in our nature, in our personality. Paul picked up on this word and this theme in chapter 12, and he said, therefore, based upon all that I've taught you before, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship or your logical act of worship. This is how you worship. Present your bodies. And it's sacrificial terminology. Put yourself on the altar. Luke chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus is presented. He's made an offering in the temple by his parents. We're commanded, offer yourselves, present yourself. That's what spiritual disciplines are about. They're making ourselves accessible to God and his spirit to transform us. So if we look at the Christian life in, in really the simplest terms, we might say that the goal is godliness. We could say this a lot of different ways, but godliness is a nice, simple word that encapsulates The fact that we want to be like God. We were designed to be like God, created in his image. We're born broken. 
We're born separated and willful, wanting to go our own way. And what God wants to do is he wants to restore that image. He wants to make us more like him. He wants us to have uh, intimacy in our relationship. And so intimate that we become more and more like God. Which is, as I would describe it, the work of God requiring our cooperation, but also rewarding us now and forever. Specifically, it's the work of God. We can't change ourselves in the ways we need to be changed. God must initiate the work. He must empower the work, but he requires our cooperation. God doesn't uh, magically just zap character change into us the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be wonderful? That we're immediately changed. It just doesn't happen that way. God requires us to cooperate with his work, and then he rewards us for it. It's It's a blessing to become more like God. It's freedom. It's what we were designed for. And he rewards us with rich life now and forever. How does it come about? Well, one of the critical elements that God uses in this process is what the Bible describes as spiritual disciplines. Okay, I've heard them described as spiritual dependencies. Putting ourselves at the Spirit's disposal so he can change us. Which I define like this. Habits of body and mind that allow us to effectively cooperate with God's spirit in the process of character transformation. Again, it's God's spirit that's changing us. How do we cooperate? How do we make ourselves available? Well, there's a variety of ways. Often we call them spiritual disciplines. In and of themselves, they don't change us. Let me illustrate. Husbands, you want an intimate relationship with your wife. So weekly, you set aside a date night. You get together, you have a meal, you talk, you have conversation. Does that guarantee you will have an intimate marriage? No, but guys, that's a good start. You know, you might might not want to neglect time with your wife. I also wouldn't describe it as a discipline, personally. That won't win you a lot of points. But time together, consistently, Regularly, the habit of being together and talking and sharing and speaking truth to one another and love and affirming. These are the things that build and grow a relationship. Spiritual disciplines work similarly. Richard Foster wrote in a wonderful book he wrote about on spiritual disciplines. He said, by themselves, spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. Or as Dallas Willard wrote in Spirit of the Disciplines, the activities constituting the disciplines have no value in themselves. And this is what he means. The aim and substance of spiritual life is not fasting, prayer, hymn singing, frugal living, and so forth. Rather, the aim and the substance of the spiritual life is the effective and full enjoyment of active love of God and humankind in all of the daily rounds of normal existence where we are placed. In other words, goal of Christian life is that we would enjoy God and we would enjoy others in everything that we do. Spiritual disciplines are choices that we can make to put ourselves at God's disposal so he can transform us so we do enjoy him in absolutely everything that we do. So this morning we're going to start with the discipline of rest, which I thought would be a really great one to start with because there's probably maybe one in 10 of you who are actually good at this. And, and I'm not among that 10%. I'm not good at stopping and listening to the voice of God. So I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter one, verse 35, and we're going to begin by looking at the example of Jesus Christ at rest. A few years ago, I stumbled upon a a study that was done by a group of psychologists 
They did their study on mice and they were hoping to extrapolate from the mice to human nature and human behavior. And what they discovered was that um, a really high dosage of amphetamines was required to kill a mouse living in solitude. Okay, you got that? So if they isolated a mouse, that mouse lived in solitude, it required a really high dosage of amphetamines to kill the mouse. On the other hand, if you put a group of mice together, the amount of amphetamines required to kill that, those mice was 20 times smaller. Less medication, less drugs, but they fed off of one another. They also discovered if you took a mouse that had no drugs in its system and dropped it into a group of mice that were drugged, it would only take 10 minutes for that mouse to die. It would be so affected by the behavior, the frantic behavior of those mice around it, that it would be dead in 10 minutes. We live in a chaotic, frantic stressed out culture. If you ask any of the doctors who are sitting here today, some of the leading causes for medical issues, for health problems in our culture, they would say one of the leading factors is stress. We're, we're, we're stressed out. We are, we're, we're compulsive people. We feel like we're always under pressure, always under the gun, so we always need to be doing many things at once. We're driving, but we're also eating and drinking and talking. And I've seen ladies putting on makeup while they're driving and now we text while we drive because we have so much that we must get done. I want you to just imagine for a moment, just imagine if I began giving this sermon this morning and a text came up and I said, hold on a second. And I began to text, but preaching at the same time as I'm texting, just imagine be a little insulted, wouldn't you? It kind of, kind of bother you because this is kind of an important thing that we're doing right now, this conversation we're having about the word of God, right? But I'd feel like, oh, it's okay, let me text a bit. You know, I, I did a charity golf tournament uh, about a month ago and it was funny because I was sitting at the table at the end of the golf tournament and the folks who were running it were announcing prizes and giving thanks for people who donated and this kind of thing. And I looked over and there's a group of, of golfers sitting at the table, there's about five or six of them. They were all 50 and above Okay, this was not college students, teenagers, wasn't young adults. They were all 50 or above, and all of them were on their smartphones, texting, searching the internet, not listening here, not talking to one another for sure. You know, and that's that something. That's amazing. I'm amazed they even know how to use the thing. I guess the kids showed them, right? But there they are. Got to do lots of things all at once. Why? Because we're so important? And sometimes we're so busy because that busyness makes us feel needed or valuable. Sometimes we're so busy because we really don't want to stop and listen. Maybe to the loneliness that's inside or we don't want to stop and listen to the voice of God speaking to us about what's happening. Or Sometimes we're just in exceptionally bad habits and we don't realize that we have a choice with the way that we live our lives and we can stop and we can listen to the Lord. Jesus lived his life exceptionally well. He is our model for how to live. And Jesus did not live frantically. I want you to read with me. Mark chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 32. Mark chapter 1 verse 32. It says, when evening came, 
After the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and he went away to a secluded place. And he was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may may preach there also for that is what I came for. I want to make three observations about Jesus' life from this. The first is this, Jesus had a lot to do. And I would argue that the stuff he was doing was pretty important. Is that a fair statement, right? Healing people of their diseases, casting out demons, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, dying for people's sins. Jesus Jesus had a lot on his plate, right? He got here and he had stuff to do. But he wasn't crazy, frantic in his activities. In fact, Jesus often said no. Jesus often disappointed people. Read with me here again, chapter 1, verse 34. He healed many who were ill of various diseases, cast out many demons. Verse 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left. He went away to a secluded place. He was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him. They said, everyone is looking for you. They want more, Jesus. Give them more. Because you quit last night too early and there are still people who want to be healed. And there are still people with demons. And there are still people who haven't gotten to hear the gospel of the kingdom yet. And Jesus said, it's time to leave. Do you think that they were disappointed? Yeah, there were people who were left there waiting. Disappointed, unhealed. They were too far back, they didn't get to hear the sermon. And now what, what? Jesus is gone, where'd he go? We find that Jesus frequently departed. For a guy who was trying to build a ministry, that's really strange behavior. But you see it over and over again in Jesus' life. Let me give you just a few illustrations. Before and after a day of ministry, you see Jesus pulling away. He goes into a secluded place. He finds solitude away from people. After John's arrest and then again after John's death, John, his cousin, a man he had grown up with, close friend as well, the forerunner to the faith. It was emotionally devastating for him. Jesus pulls away. After feeding 5,000, he's tired, he's exhausted, he pulls away. After teaching all day, Jesus pulls away. Because Jesus was not driven by the demands of those around him. He was driven by God's vision for his life. Which, yes, was to preach the gospel, But to do so from a full heart, from an inner world that was completely in order, that was dependent upon God and directed by God. And so he needed to listen to God in stillness and in silence. Third observation, Jesus honored the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus kept the law. We know in one argument he had with the Pharisees, he says, "Who, who accuses me of any violation, and they couldn't answer him anything. That means that Jesus kept all the law, including the law of the Sabbath. But he didn't keep it as a slave to the Sabbath. Remember his statement. The Sabbath was made as a gift for man. Man wasn't made to be a slave of the Sabbath. And so Jesus would frequently do things that transcended the Sabbath, so to speak. He would, he would heal and he would teach on the Sabbath. He would give life on the Sabbath. 
but the principle of departing and resting he kept. Maybe it wasn't on the Sabbath itself, but at some point in time he would pull away and be with his father. So what I want us to look at for a moment is, is basically the meaning of this concept. What does it mean to have a Sabbath rest and how do we keep it? I want you to turn with me to Psalm 46 verse 9. Psalm 46 and verse 9. Let's define our, our terms here for a moment. Psalmist writes, He, that is God, the Father, he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow in two and he cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Uh, do you see the word Sabbath in that verse? It's there. The verb Sabbath, Shabbat, is to cease, right in the first phrase there, it says, he makes the wars to cease. Uh, the verb Sabbath simply means stop. Stop. Cease. General context, it can be God makes wars to cease. In our context, it means stop what you are normally doing, your work and even your normal patterns of leisure. Stop. Change the pattern and pay attention to God. He uses a synonym in verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. Or as it's translated, be still. Stop, cease, cease striving, be still. Listen, let go, relax. Stop your normal patterns of behavior and pay attention to God. Now for the Jew, that meant Friday night when the sun went down, all the way through the day on Saturday till the sun went down again. That was the law. But we're not under the law, are we? We learned that from Romans chapter 7. We don't live under the law anymore. We observed as well in Romans chapter 14, specifically related to the Sabbath, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So must we actually keep the Sabbath since we're not under the law any longer? Let me give you a few reasons why we should keep a Sabbath. First, the principle of Sabbath rest is revealed actually in creation. It's revealed by God in creation. Long before the law was given, God revealed this pattern of needing rest in creation. Earlier, Lance read Genesis chapter 2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. That word for rest is the word Shabbat. God stopped. Did God rest because God was worn out? Did he say, you know, man, creating universe is hard work. I better take a break. I better take a nap. I better slow down. No. He wasn't tired at all from the act of creation. God created for six days and stopped on the seventh to give us a pattern for how we should live. That's why it's repeated in the law, and that's why Jesus followed the pattern. Because the way that he has made mankind is we can't live effectively for God unless we stop from time to time. And so God created a pattern for us in creation. Second, the principle is emphasized in God's word. Of the Ten Commandments, there is more uh, teaching and exhortation about the Sabbath than probably any of the other commandments. Except maybe things that relate to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no idols 
Sabbath commandments. And the punishment for failing to keep the Sabbath was severe. It was removal from the land. God said, I want you to be a a sanctified people set apart for me. I want you to be very different from these nations around you. Guess what? All the nations around you, they work seven days a week. Why? Because they can't trust their gods. But I want you to work six days and then stop. And imagine how radical this was in, in an agricultural society where that was the, the, the basis of their economy, that you're going to work just six days and then you're going to stop. And the nations around them would see that and they'd say, that is crazy behavior. Why are you doing that? Because we trust that God will provide for us. It's different. It's different. It sets them apart. It sets us apart that we trust God is working on our behalf, even when we are at rest. Third, it is a reminder of emancipation from slavery. In the second giving of the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Notice the second phrase there. Therefore, because you were a slave but you're not a slave now, observe the Sabbath. How many days a week does a slave work? Seven days a week. No choice, no freedom. And so you were born a slave and I was born a slave, slaves to sin. And everything that happens in our life is dependent upon us and what we can work out if we do not have God in our lives. And so we must work, 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 work. But we are no longer slaves. We're free in Christ. And so we can stop and we can trust that God is working on our behalf because we're free. Fourth, it's a sign of future blessing. Ezekiel chapter 20, it says, I gave them my Sabbaths. That is, I gave them as a gift. Sabbath is given to man. Man is not made for Sabbath. I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. I'm the Lord who sets them apart. And it goes on in Ezekiel and reminds us that they're set apart because God has promised them a glorious future. And Sabbath is a sign of that future. We're told in the book of Hebrews that Sabbath is a sign of God's kingdom on earth. Okay, it's, it, it, for the Jew, it was a, a weekly reminder that what we're experiencing day in and day out here on this earth is not the end of the story. Someday, God will send Messiah. Messiah will establish God's kingdom. We're not going to have all of this frustration in bringing crops forth from the earth. We won't be frustrated with our work. We'll be frustrated with our relationships. We will have peace and pleasure and enjoyment in God's kingdom on earth. <sighs> Sabbath, we stop and we remember not just our former slavery, but we think about our future glory. Therefore, stop and rest because Sabbath is a gift to mankind. And as a gift, it has certain blessings that are attached to it. What are the benefits of the rest? First, refreshment and renewal. Jesus set a pattern for his disciples. He describes it here in Mark chapter 6. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and all of them had needs. All of them had demands. All of them had expectations. They didn't even have time to eat. So Jesus says, let's, let's come away. And he would pull them apart as a group. 
And they would have fellowship with one another and they would be able to eat and rest and talk and laugh. And then periodically Jesus would go by himself because he needed to listen. It's a pattern in his life, refreshment and renewal. Physically, they needed to eat. They needed to sleep. They needed to be away from people's demands. Uh, Emotionally, spiritually. Think about um, Elijah's experience. Remember, he's on top of the mountain Baal. He fights, or Mount Carmel. He fights the prophets of Baal. Wonderful spiritual victory. But then he runs. The, The rain begins to come and he runs. He races ahead Uh, of the chariot. He races away from Jezebel who's threatened his life and he runs 50 miles. He runs a long way. And he's exhausted. He's exhausted physically. He's exhausted emotionally and spiritually and he becomes so deeply depressed. You know, I I picked up my my kid's uh, children's Bible and it's funny because the story about Elijah just ends with the victory in the children's Bible. Oh, Elijah was depressed and wanted to die. Let's not talk about that, kids. Right? I mean, but that, that's where the story goes. And so God comes to him and he gives him water, he gives him food, he gives him rest. Remember at, at seminary, our, our chaplain, Chaplain Bill Bryan, he used to say to us periodically, um, the seminary students are very, can be very obsessive, compulsive, and driven. He'd say, you know, sometimes the most spiritual thing that you folks can do is to take a good nap and rest. Because the human body must have rest. And the human spirit must have rest. Or it doesn't function effectively. A couple years ago, a friend made my son a a hand-carved bow out of bow dark wood. When he gave it to him, he showed him how to string it. Then he showed him how to unstring it. And he said, when you're not shooting your bow, you need to leave it unstrung. Because if you leave it strung all the time... The wood constantly under stress will lose its pliability. It won't be able to shoot the arrows fast any longer. It may get a crack in it and eventually it'll fail. You unstring the bow. String it up tight when you're using it and then unstring it. That's a principle in human life. We are not designed to go, 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 go. Jesus didn't even himself go constantly for three years and then collapse on the cross. He knew the will of God for him, and he knew that that will included preaching the gospel, healing people, suffering and dying for sins, but to do so effectively, he had to stop periodically and allow God to refresh his spirit. So a second benefit here is focused prayer. When Jesus withdrew, what did he do? Well, he prayed. It says Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. He often left his disciples by themselves, and all alone he would go to the wilderness and he would pray. So that he could pour out his heart to God and he could, without all of the distractions, listen to God. Another psychological experiment that I read about a couple years ago in which a a student was required to gather a set of books from the library and then walk down the library steps and partway down the steps to drop all the books. And they recorded how many people stopped to help the student. About 50% of the people would stop and help gather the books, about 50%. Then they repeated the experiment. They started a lawnmower close by. The student walked down the steps, dropped the books, and then with the lawnmower going in the background, only 10% of the people stopped. Just just the distraction of the noise. And 40% of people, we can conclude, who would have stopped otherwise, don't stop 
because they're just distracted. And you know, we have to just stop sometimes, get away from all of the distractions so that we can get reoriented in life about what's important and what's valuable and listen to the voice of God. Third benefit, we worship in truth. Read with me again chapter 46, Psalms, the book of Psalms, chapter 46, verse 10. Be still, cease striving, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. That is, the God who commands armies, he is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. In the context of this psalm, the the psalmist is um, under threat and he recognizes God is my stronghold, God is my rock, God is my refuge. In the midst of the battle, we are often tempted to uh, overestimate our importance. (laughs) Our activity is required. We begin to trust only in ourselves. We forget about the significance of the fact that, oh yeah, God is God. Notice again, cease striving and know that I am God. You're not. I'm the one who's God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord who commands armies, he is the one who is with us. The God of Jacob, he is our stronghold. And when we stop our normal activities of work and even our normal activities of leisure and we're able to listen to God, life takes on fresh perspective and we remember God is great. God is good. God is powerful and God is engaged in our world. Leonardo da Vinci once gave some advice to other artists. He said this, every now and then go away, have a little relaxation for when you come back to your work, your judgment will be sure since to remain constantly at work will cause you to lose power of judgment. And so it is in art, so it is in the spiritual life. So how do we apply this? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. First, everyone needs rest. I don't care how tough you think you are. (laughs) You got to stop. You you have to stop. To live effectively for God, you have to disengage. Everyone needs this. This applies to every single person. Second, it doesn't matter when you do it or how long. It doesn't need to be Saturday or Friday evening until Saturday. It doesn't necessarily have to be an entire day, but it is something that I want to just encourage you to start. Some of you may be very good at applying this principle. Some of you may take a day a week. You may be really good at really disengaging from your normal world and listening to God. I suspect very few of you are. I'm not. I'm not. If you're really good about this, let me encourage you to take not just a day a week, but why don't you try to think about setting aside a a day a month and just listen to the Lord. Get out of your normal setting. Add that. If you haven't even started this process, I want to encourage you to just do 10 minutes a day. Okay? Simply this summer, do 10 minutes a day where you stop your normal activities of work and your normal activities of leisure just to listen to God. What I want you to do as a first application point for this series is I want you to memorize Psalm 46 verses 10 and 11 and 10 minutes a day meditate upon this principle. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord who commands armies, he is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that we would not be um, too proud to stop and rest and listen. 
I pray, Father, we would not be too driven by the demands of uh, our culture or things within us needing demand and requirement to to need approval from others. I, I pray that, Father, we would learn to live more wisely. I pray, Father, that you would use this principle just to deepen our characters. We listen to you. Father, I thank you for the example of Jesus who, although he was fully God, yet living in the same conditions we live in, living as a a human, living as a man, uh, he patterned for us a a way to live well and wisely. And he stopped and he rested and he pulled away. And even though he had things to do that were more important than anything that we do in our entire lives, yet he stopped and he listened to you. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. I pray that you change us and transform us. And we depend upon you for that. It's in Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week and rest.